Welcome to a new Writer's Block Podcast. I'm your long-lost host, J.R. Havlin. How you doing? Tonight's episode brought to you by hippos, but not the hungry, hungry ones. They get enough attention as it is. Listen, I know your beloved Colbert Report has aired its last episode. I know you're already jonesing, suffering withdrawal, and that's just one reason I'm happy to tell you my guest is someone who was a writer for that show on day one and was also there on day last. Eric Drysdale is a fascinating guy. He's so unique and so interesting and, of course, so funny. And he's on Writer's Block to share with us how he became that way, including some very early performances for an admittedly captive audience. When I was about five years old, my parents were having a party downstairs. And, like, I came down and I was wearing a Batman costume. And I did this thing where, like, I came down in the middle of their party and I did this bit where I was like, I'm Batman and this is my bat pencil and this is my bat squeaky toy and this is my bat block and this is my bat and i did a bit i would have been amused by that yeah i would have thought that's cute yeah and i just like i told i could tell that like oh that's i'm not supposed to be here right now but as long as i'm making them happy yeah uh, i'm allowed to stay even at the age of five eric knew one of the true keys to being a successful comedy writer as long as you're making people happy you're allowed to stay Eric also shares some amazing experiences that helped shape the man I'm sure that he'll become someday. And of course, we talk about his experience at the Colbert Report. It's nearly everything you ever wanted to know, almost. But before we get started, a quick, not often heard, writer's block plug. We are happy to be a part of New York PodFest 2015. It's a thing. On January 10th at Fontana's Bar in New York City, Writer's Block will have a live taping with my guest, and this makes me very happy, Jesse Klein. Jesse is the head writer and co-executive producer of the fantastically fantastic Inside Amy Schumer. So if you're in New York City on the 10th, be in Fontana's Bar on the 10th. And if you're not, tell someone else to be there. Plug complete. This is episode 44. My guest is Eric Drysdale. I'm J.R. Havlin. You're part of the writer's block now. Good choice. Check, 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 check. More checking from me. Do you need more checking from me? I need a check from you. Checking. One, two, one, two. Can you go to three? How do you do? I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you, but can you go to three? Three. No, one and then two and then three. One, two. Yeah, but no, check, one, two, three. Check, one, two. Three. Three. Right. I'll edit that together. Okay. (laughs) Eric Drysdale is my guest. Eric. Hello, Hello, sir. It's good. Good. You're on the you're you're officially on the Writers Block podcast now. It's good to be here. I'm excited about it. This is the first uh, sibling pairing. Right, Your lovely sister Rebecca, episode thirty six, and a good one. One of the classics. One of the <laughs> one one of I would say roughly forty three classics. Yes, classic <laughs> Writers Block podcast. If I had to go back and pick the top, it's 43. one of the it's one of the forty three that you have to see. Eric and Rebecca are brother and uh, sister and siblings. And siblings. Is that really? Mm -hmm. Those are different things? Or is that like the French? Is that like you're from Canada? So is that like, were you you just doing like a translation? No. Were you born in Canada? No. No, we became naturalized Canadian citizens. I've probably already gone over this with your sister, but she's a little older than you. Is that right? Or she's younger than you? She's 10 years younger than me. 10 years younger than you. Yeah, she's not a little older than me. I'm going to edit that out. (laughs) 
It's a maturity thing is what it is. <laughs> it's simply completely and utterly a maturity thing it's that I was really? dealing with. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. By the way, I saw the pictures of her wedding and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, really nice fantastic wedding. Yeah. It was so much fun. Plus, then I saw her on, uh, uh, what did I see her on, Mindy? Yeah, she had yeah. been on Mindy. She's, yeah. she's doing good. Yeah, sure, she sure is. And as are you. After all these years, Eric uh, and I met uh, in 2000, 2000 when, when you started? It was uh, it was me and Allison Silverman started on the same day. Wow. January 21st, 2000. Whatever became of her, right? I don't know. Right. She went south. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Can't have it all. Nope. You can't move from show to show running that show and doing great <laughs> at it. No, she's doing great. Yeah. I don't know where she is Oh, right no, now. she's at the Tina Fey, uh, oh, yeah, okay. Ellie Kemper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, with Sam. Yep. Sam Means. Yep. Um... Another Daily Show writer. So that what year was that then? That was two thousand. In two thousand, January two thousand. So one year after John started. Yep, and we were office mates. It was, you and I. It was my first real TV job. Yeah, and they always stick the new. They they would stick the new guy in with me all the time. I became that guy at the Colbert Report. They would always stick oh, yeah? the new guy with me. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's a comfort level. The, uh, yeah, we, yeah. We knew what we were doing. I guess so, we were yeah. nice. People liked us. Yeah. Okay. You weren't always nice. Well, to you, I would. No, no. Let's talk about that. I'm glad that we have. I knew you were here for a reason. Is to finally get this. Beef no, no, no. Up. You were, you were, you were a grumpy guy. You're a grumpy guy. I was like a. I must have been really annoying because I was like a wide-eyed. I was so happy to be there. I think I'd. I think it, this was not too long after I'd finally gotten out of Paul out of my. Office. So you have to understand there was, there was lingering resentment yeah. going on in the seat that you were. No, sitting you're in. all. You were mad at contractors and. <laughs> This is an unfair, yet slightly <laughs> accurate characterization of my time at the Daily Show. I didn't you know, know it went back to two thousand. I must have reminded. I must have reminded you of one of your contractors. <laughs> yeah, most con- you you have a contractor's look to you. There's no doubt about it. Most of the contractors I work with look a lot like you. No, you you were great. It was really, you, you were great. It was really a great education, and you, uh, you were a great person to have show the ropes. You had a very uh, business-like attitude towards, I, I just, like, when you get down and you sit down to write, um, you you have the focus, and it was good that you were there. You learned that? You learned yeah, how, to, how, to, how to focus and then how to, like, somehow drop that focus, yell at a contractor, and then bam, right back <laughs> into that focus. Like, get yeah. that toilet in right, and then yeah, boom, yeah. right back to the jokes. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a thing. I read uh, an, an interview with you, uh, that you did recently, and you were talking about getting that job and kind of making the adjustment to that. But I actually want to talk about The Daily Show later. We, Eric is a writer for The Colbert Report as mm-hmm. well uh, right now. That was an interesting transition to go over there. Mm-hmm. You might have another transition coming up. Yep. But uh, let's go back, Eric. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. Because it is a time of reflection. To your time, that how hard it was for you to agree to become a Canadian citizen. <laughs> I mean that had to be traumatic for a what a two year old? No, no, no. I wasn't two. I was. I was actually. Uh, actually, no. I'm pretty sure you were two. <laughs> That's the story I'm going. No, no, no. No, this is how it works here. No, because I'm ten older than ten years older than Rebecca, and she also became a naturalized. I still citizen. don't even so, believe that. <laughs> on that day, and uh, yeah, because I remember I had to count how many days I was in Canada because I was going to school in the United States, and it was like I had to hit a certain number or else I wasn't going to be able to do it with the rest of the family. Wow. Really? So okay. yeah, because because my family had moved to Vancouver in the eighties, and uh, yeah, we had happened to be there just on the cusp of what was long enough to become citizens. 
And why was it that you needed to become citizens? Um, they I were, think just they were just going to move there and work there. Yeah, and, and taxes and right, you know, draft dodging. No, not draft dodging. Um, my my father <laughs> had a girlfriend I'm, in Canada. No, my father said Jews should have as many passports as they can get. Okay, classic. <laughs> Oh, and that's what got you out to France and stuff too, though. Yeah, right? yeah, it? yeah. My father um, worked for uh, the Jewish Federation system, and uh, which is kind of a kind of umbrella Jewish charity group. So he likes to be able to flee legally as quickly as possible <laughs> from anywhere. You just you can never be too safe. Is that what it is? Uh, I mean, his mother was in the Holocaust, and let's talk about that. <laughs> we don't have to. So, uh, but he but he worked with this federation. You guys traveled a lot. You yeah, lived we in moved places. in we moved to different places. But you were kind of settled in Vancouver for the most part. For no, a lot of it, not, really. not really. I mean, we really we really every five or six years it was a new place. Right. And then by the time we got to Vancouver, like I had decided to go off to college, so I was in yet another city. And and you went to Emerson. Yeah, yeah. But you did stand up for the first time when you were twelve or something like that. Oh, at summer camp, yes, at Camp Tel Nor, which was a Jewish summer camp that I went to in New you don't Hampshire. Have to keep that. I'll just assume that everything you do is Jewish in some okay. way. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> what made you think that you could do that? I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about this on the way over here because um, I always knew that laughter made people happy, and uh, when I was about five years old, my parents were having a party downstairs, and like. I could never resist like running downstairs and showing off. And like I did a bit like I came like I came down and I was wearing a Batman costume. And I said I had all of the stuff like packed in because I guess I had seen a couple episodes of the 1960s Batman on TV or something. And I did this thing where like I came down in the middle of their party and I did this bit where I was like, I'm Batman and this is my bat pencil and this is my bat squeaky toy and this is my bat block and this is my bet and i did a bit i would have been amused by that yeah i would have thought that's cute yeah and i just like i told i could tell that like oh that's i'm not supposed to be here right now but as long as i'm making them happy yeah uh, i'm allowed to stay isn't it funny too that like even at the age of five like you you i mean it might have been a little it might have been seven i don't know whatever it was but you but but uh you think about that bit and the 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 bit whether you kind of like really worked it out in your head or not was you realized that it was sort of ridiculously comical that this guy had all these bat things yes. and that they named them the bat thing. Yeah. And so you just went ahead and, and and did that with those, but knowing that it was for comedic purposes. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of advanced, really. Yeah, and, and why I thought that it would be okay. Like, I just went downstairs. Like, I was supposed to be asleep. Right. And I just was like, sorry, you guys take a break from your cocktails. And, nope. then, and then you pissed on the floor and everybody knew you were possessed. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, is that a different thing I'm thinking of? I but know. I guess I guess I always like thought thought that feeling of like people laughing, right? Giving people a pain. And how did that? Uh, do you do you remember like what you did as the twelve year old stand up comic at camp? I don't. I remember one one was joke. it jokes that you wrote? Was it? Like, yeah, I wrote like, like a stand up routine. It was a talent show. Wow. Um, I can't imagine it was more than four minutes long. No, God. Um. And the only joke I remember is that it was. Can you imagine what it would be look what it would be like if a ballet dancer taught football players? <laughs> and then stop there. And then I said, "Yeah, it would be instead of like one, two, three, hut. It would be one, two, three, kick, <laughs> or something like that. It was that bad. It's really terrible. 
And that was my best joke. Wow. Yeah. So, so between the ages of seven and 12, you somehow lost all of your comedic <laughs> focus. That that promising start. Listen, it was a dark period for me. Yeah, I bet. You know, but I was doing clearly, a lot of drugs. But for whatever reason, I, like, all, all, <laughs> is that right? I was strung out at the time, man. Strung out, yeah, baby. Yeah, I was really bottomed Listening out. to a lot and of my career was really... <laughs> Listen to a lot of New York dolls, and I just, man, I was in a different space. <laughs> but what, what kind of stuff were you amused by yourself? And what, like television were you watching, and, and movies did you like? What, what was amusing you as a child and as a young adult? Um, I mean, I loved the George Carlin specials. Uh, I loved the coasters and the, um, the like, the novelty song compilations. Um, the like the KTEL goofy oh, yeah, greats, oh, yeah, yeah, but, goofy yeah. greats, and stuff like that. Does that include Disco Duck? Or? And my father had a um a collection of forty fives, like from when he was a kid. And one of them was Buchanan and Goodman. Do you know who that is? No. Buchanan and Goodman. They uh, do you know Mr. Jaws? No. Okay, it's these these comedy singles where they would do a thing like we're reporting on the flying saucer coming, and instead of kind of having just a regular sketch, they would say, well. Uh, what do you think of uh, the women here on Earth? And then it would cut to Earth Angel, Earth Angel, like the um, the actual song. Yeah, right. <clears throat> we interrupt this record to bring you a special bulletin. The reports of a flying saucer hovering over the city have been confirmed. The flying saucers are real. We switch you now to our on-the-spot reporter downtown. Come on, baby, let's go downtown. Take it away, John Cameron Cameron. Uh, this is John Cameron Cameron downtown. Uh, pardon me, madam, would you tell our audience what would you do if the saucer were to land? Duck, duck in the alley. Thank you. Another thing, gentlemen, there. What I'm gonna do is hard to tell. Uh, the gentleman with the guitar, what would you do, sir? Would you take a walk down the street? Thank you. We return you now. <laughs> It actually became a landmark case for sampling. Um, Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's so funny. Um, Jesus. Yeah, so my father had that record and I loved it. it I mean, it's it does not hold up as great comedy by any stretch. No, it doesn't but, sound like it. <laughs> but, um, but for a five-year-old, I mean... I just I and he had, had him on like little forty five. Had little forty fives. He had oh, that one, and he also got a little introduced to a lot of rock. Got a little stick, the little plastic thing in the middle to get yeah. it on there. Great. And fantastic. Um, I also got introduced to a lot of rock and roll that way. Um, but uh, but it was that and Yakety Yak by the Coasters, where the guy yeah. goes, "Don't talk back." Yeah, you know, I thought that was hilarious. Not intentionally though for for them, like oh like, no, totally intentionally oh, yeah, for them. Was, oh, they're amazing. But I mean, really? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're going to write a funny, goofy song. I mean, was that like, but it wasn't like at a weird owl level of like parody. They're really funny, those songs. If really? That, if I, if I'm saying like as a comedy recommendation, not as a, not as a music recommendation. Right. Yeah, yeah. The Coaster's Greatest Hits. I'm not kidding. <laughs> really? I'm yeah, you not... said the Coasters, and I didn't even know. I was like, I, I didn't, I know the Coasters, but I didn't think that's who you were talking about. No, that's exactly who I'm talking about. Wow. I'm not, and I said, and as I said, not as a music recommendation, as a comedy recommendation. They, because they did, the, did they do Charlie Brown? Too? They did Charlie Brown too. Their catalog is really deep. They're not just a novelty band. They had songs that were really about uh, race and class, and um, really funny and well observed. 
and uh, Libra and Stoller wrote all all of them. Really? Yeah, and uh, they're just the best. Wow. I mean, that is a that is a comedy recommendation. That is not a the coaster's greatest hits. Yeah, go pick it up. Or uh, the 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 two. There are all sorts of different compilations available, but the more the better. Let's take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, talk a bit more about uh, uh, young uh, Eric Drysdale, that transition into your first job, and then uh, into the real world of comedy writing, which yep. you are entrenched in at this point. Yeah. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm J.R. Havlin. This is Writer's Blog Podcast. I'm going to go ahead and admit it. I kind of like the Buchanan and Goodman flying saucer bit. It's easy to find on YouTube, along with plenty of other stuff they did, so check it out. And while you're at it, get the coaster's greatest hits. If you don't like it, your money back. Guaranteed. Not a guarantee. Let's get back to Eric Drysdale and find out how he got his first job, how much and how little he learned from it, and why it's not necessarily a bad idea to get on the back of a total stranger's scooter while hitchhiking through Yugoslavia. I think that last one fits snugly in the category of only on writer's block. All right, we're back. Eric Drysdale. Hi, Eric. I'm also back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. A lot of times, you'd be surprised. Uh, I do one act. And I wouldn't the, be that surprised. The next two are really just just uh, uh, looping. There's a lot of <laughs> looping going on. And I try to, I cover for it pretty well, I think. But if you really listen... So you're just using the same footage over and over? Well, I use some stuff that I cut out, some of the cutting room floor. I got to bring it back on. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you understand. It's uh, the magic stuff. Stuff from business. previous interviews. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's the magic of show business. That. We were talking about making movies in, in uh, um, making a movie in high school. Yeah, we made a couple. Your, but, okay. Yeah, but and we brought. It was like sketch stuff. It was what? just a sketch. I was in, in, in high school. Uh, I found some friends that were into it and you know it wasn't like today where you can go out and you just you have whatever your little camera and you go around but like we had to rent a giant three-quarter deck uh, like a three-quarter deck and uh really yeah and to do to put it on tape to just put it on tape um and we made a movie like i nobody told us we couldn't so we did <laughs> um and we like it was crazy we were i 17 and 18 years old and we like Got a it's, restaurant to let us in overnight, and we shot in the restaurant all night long. And give uh, me the idea of the sketch. I'm it was uh, it was called the Polka Dot Jungle, and it was about uh, rival street gangs that fight uh, using Twister, the game ah, Twister. Okay, yeah, sure, all right. Why in a restaurant? Why? Oh, it was a '50s restaurant because it, it was it took place in the '50s. It was like a James Dean. So it was a period piece, which is a great idea for your first effort. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why not like, why not yeah why not complicate you know, it with costume uh, costuming and, and yeah and uh set design yeah <laughs> no but that it was like we filmed in kind of a one of those theme 50s diner oh, type, type yeah. places so we'll go ahead and do yeah, I yeah. Think. um so you you make that you were you showing these to people how did these yeah i guess we know? entered some kind of student film festival and somebody from cbc had seen it when so there what happened was there was this uh kind of teen tv show kind of like you can't do that on television type thing uh-huh. uh that was being planned kind of for slightly older teenagers or uh, but um late night and so they there was like an open call for people to audition because they wanted like a a cross section of the of young Canada like mm-hmm. they wanted to and they got it they got like 
the prairie girl, the um the the big city model, the uh So like and, a real world of Yeah, like it was a pan Canadian but it was like more like a variety show almost. Um but uh it wasn't very good. Uh but I got to work. Uh, so yeah, we went to the. Uh, a bunch of us went. You didn't audition as for for an. No, we actually just went to the. Um, we went to the open casting call with no intention of auditioning, and we just left a folder of sketches on their desk. And then we got a call, and they hired the three of us. Wow! As a writing team. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, and I. I was out of. I so was this one is year right after high school. I I was one year out of high school. The two of them were still in high school. Wow. Yeah. That's Had it. insane. Yeah. That's so fantastic. And and so uh so you get this experience. What was that experience like? I mean, well, I mean, you, I feel like it was w- it anything like w- it, looking back, yeah. can you say that this in any way prepared you for what was to come? Absolutely not. <laughs> not because not because it wasn't as punishing or or interesting or hard work or anything. It's just that I was in no position to evaluate it because it was, I was 19 years old. I was living in my parents' basement. I was making what seemed like an ungodly amount of money for, for someone living living in in a parents' parents basement. basement. And I did like the office politics part of it, um, really kind of shocked me a little bit. Were there older writers on staff? There were older writers and it was a little bit of a, there was a kind of a, crusty cbc feel about the whole thing mm-hmm. um think about like pbs trying to do something hip like that's kind of what it's just not their it's not their forte right not their, not their forte right and yeah they had like producers from the news department it wasn't a bad idea it was just not well executed but i met important people there like um drake Sather was one of the um oh really drake Sather oh. was one of the so drake Sather's uh, a, a i knew him as a comic <laughs> way back when funny comic too he was one of the comedy guests, and he, we went out to see him one night. And he's he was the one that got me back, got me on stage to try to do stand up. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And so how, uh, the show lasted how long? Less than a year. Less than a year. And so now you're, uh, you know, nineteen twenty. Yeah. Over the hill, <laughs> like out of the business. Yeah. So, but did did you, so you met Drake Sather there. Did you start doing stand-up and going I, around with him? No, no, no. I didn't go around. I just, um, I took my money. I went to Europe. For just walkabout? I went for six months. Jesus Christ. I always wondered how people do that shit. I was living in my parents' basement. Yeah, right. <laughs> which I continued to do for a little while. And thank God for that. I mean, yeah, it really sure. saved my life. What did you get out of your trip to Europe as a human being, <sighs> let alone a comedy writer? I guess just like independence and um, I went to Eastern Europe. I went to Prague before the revolution yeah, happened. This is what year? 1989. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess I felt like I was young and I wanted to do things. Yeah. Right. And you're alone just like on the rails or what? Just, yeah, I did yeah. that. I, I, I hitch- Euro pass or you were hitching pass? too? I I did I hitchhiked. It had to be with people who spoke language. You didn't even speak their language. I, yeah, I mean, I I I hitchhiked through uh, what, what was then Yugoslavia, which is an insane. Did you get picked up in a lot of Yugos? I got picked up. Um, I got picked up in a couple of, I guess Yugos, and then <laughs> I got picked up on a Austrian, not not quite a motorcycle and not not a moped, something in between. I don't know what that would really? be, like a scooter, yeah, almost. And you just got on the back. 
and I got on the back of the scooter. I mean, he had an extra thing, and really? yeah, I were, I was staying at some town. I have no Didn't idea you where have I was. A ba- or it was just a backpack. I had a, one backpack. Wow, fantastic! Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, it's uh, that's that's a kind of experience. Like, I didn't have any sort of experience like that. I was always in the same place. Yeah. You know. I mean, because I had to just work all the time. I like I I wish my parents had a basement. Yeah, I think I mean, I, the, my problem was my parents didn't have a basement or an attic. <laughs> oh, that's why. That's you know when, what? Yeah. A basement's really important. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I used to do the most dangerous things in my base, and I I used to do this thing where I would um. I would tie thread. Are like, we getting into like autoerotic asphyxiation? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, just, just pyromania. Okay. <laughs> autoerotic pyromania. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta, I want to see if that's a thing. Oh, it's so obviously a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So go on, pyromania. You tie a thread. I would tie a thread to the pipes up on the uh-huh. the up, coming off the ceiling and uh, light the bottom of the. The thread and then watch the flame go up the the thread that was just like a game when you were bored for yeah and then would go out when it hit the pipe you'd hope. hopefully <laughs> <laughs> unless unless there was a tiny string of insulation hanging down to that exactly pipe and, and then the whole house goes up. <laughs> exactly yeah so no i mean i didn't perceive those dangers at the time <laughs> We I'm sure my do. father will be horrified if he hears. You also about didn't it. perceive the danger of getting on the back of a scooter <laughs> in Yugoslavia <laughs> with some guy who's like, "Yeah, strap yourself in, young man." Uh, <laughs> but you survived it all, and I did better for it. Yeah. So you get back to uh, uh, let's bring you back to uh, uh, comedy world. Yeah. Uh, you go to you go to Emerson yeah. College. What did you study? Uh, I studied film. Film. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. That's very nice that you went in with with something that you wanted to be there for. Did, did you find that fulfilling or was it? I actually, I mean, I, I picked film because it was the closest thing to just like comedy that they had. Like, okay. I just wanted right, to be. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you had made those. I mean, you had some genuine. I did. I did. I did. I think. Um, yeah, I guess with hindsight, I can see like I sort of just wanted to write. But the thing that was great about it is that there were a lot of like minded people and there were three comedy groups at the time now there are six or something but three was like three more than a lot of that were performing in and around the school yeah did you weasel your way into one of them weasel i auditioned that's what i meant by merit why what did i say <laughs> by merit not weaseling what was it uh what was your uh, did, you, uh, did you no... pick one were you like i like these guys better i think they have my sensibility so i'm gonna go with them or was it just did an opening occur how did you uh, how did you get involved with that because you have to, I mean, you do have to take that step. Right, you have absolutely. To, you have to say, like, you have, oh, to, that's good you point, have to convince yeah. yourself, like, this is not only something I want to do, this is something I'm going to do. Yeah, and, and that I totally... think I can do because otherwise I'm in the wrong spot. And if I go in without at least a shred of confidence, then I'm screwed. Yeah. So, so you know, wh- wh- I don't where remember, was your head? Then? I don't remember whether I picked them specifically. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, there were three... Uh, the Swollen Monkey Showcase was the name of it, um, and I think it still exists. I like that. I like I like any name for a, a sketch or improv group where I don't know what it means, which is most of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was a really valuable experience. You had to put on a show, you know. You had to put on a show, right? So we put on shows, and it, you know, sketch I, stuff. All yeah, yeah. Not I, improv. We did improv a couple times. So it was really a sketch, right? Enterprise, and that's while you're at school. At school, and, and it took a lot of my attention. It was a 
eventually from there you moved to New York. Yes. And you were you were thinking I'm going to go to New York and do some stand up yeah. and and get into that world. Yeah. That's my way in. Yeah. Uh were you thinking were you looking for sketch groups or the the improv sketch scene was maybe not quite where certainly not quite where it's at right now, but right. at that point was probably still more on the fringe. Stand up was a bigger thing back then. No, I think I came and I, I I wanted to find something that I could do on my own, uh-huh. um, and stand up seemed to be the a good fit because you write the stuff and then you say the stuff and right. then they know who wrote it. Right. Um, that was just kind of the way. I, as a practical thing, is like, how can people hear my writing? And then that was the reason. And I don't think that I'm a great stand up. I don't think that uh, I I that's what I was cut out to do. But it was the way that I picked to get myself out there. Right. And. You just doing open mics. What year was this? Uh, this was, I guess, I, I yeah, I moved here in like uh, 93. So, um, you know, the, I went and I, I, I came here and tried to get going in the clubs a little bit. And you've probably talked. There were a about lot of clubs going on the, back then. The bringer shows yeah, and right, that yeah. whole scene was yeah. was uh, really knocked the wind out of me very quickly. Uh, yeah, bringer shows. Eric's talking about. We talked about them before. You. You you are asked by the club to bring ten friends who have to pay, and then they kind of like put them through hell with the yeah. shitty show. You know your friends who just moved to yeah. New York City, and the big thing was the more people you brought, the later you had to go on in this shitty show because they didn't want your friends to leave when you were done. Yeah, so it was like there wasn't much of a payoff for it, and you would feel bad. But yeah, and like um, you'd have to scrape together your four friends in New York City who had just moved there and didn't have any money, and say come drop forty dollars on quesadillas and watch me and terrible other terrible people who are just as terrible as me <laughs> i can promise you that yeah uh the, yeah gonna, it's, it's a, gonna be a consistent it's a bad show. deal it'll but, be consistent but eventually i did i did find the uh, it took a, a a long time but i eventually did find kind of the alternative scene that was going on with yeah, uh, the luna, luna lounge that, yeah that, that i remember when that stuff popped up and I, w- I and and i was just so kind of entrenched in this sort of mainstream comedy club thing yeah and but for you, you felt like you just naturally fit better into that. I just naturally fit better into that. Yeah, and then and uh, um, you can look up uh, online. Eric did the uh, um, I think historic, historic performance. On a Comedy historic Central performance, yeah. Of, uh, of a, a career-making performance. Did you do a lot of characters other than Crazy Davis? No, I didn't. Okay, so Crazy Davis was this again. It was just but, out of practicality. It was yeah. just like. This is the funniest thing I could come up with. Yeah. Who else is going to do it? But it also, but nobody was going to do that. Right. And and it, it also just takes great commitment. So Crazy Davis was this character. Look it up online. You just put in Crazy Davis, and uh, um, and it will come up. <laughs> and it's uh, um, which is nice. Always, yeah. when, you know, when you're the top of the Google hit, then you've done something unique. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. You know, it's Crazy nice. Davis. You'd think like you'd think there would be at least three like used car salesman commercials <laughs> before you get to your thing, but no, you're above them, and that's fantastic. So, it's this great thing where the the character is coming back because of nostalgia for a uh, for a the musical 80s. compilation, kind of like almost Weird Al sort of goofy album greats. That you had. It goofy, was basically it was basically based greats. on goofy. one of them called the uh, um, oh, this view, this Rubik's cube is driving me crazy. This Rubik's cube is driving me crazy, and that's the one that you eventually sing on the show, and it's fantastically funny. And what I loved about it was one the commitment to this <laughs> character. Like again, you talk about like like ball. That was just something that I never could do myself. Was like okay, I'm just gonna go out 
and commit myself right now to seven minutes of this insane character, regardless of what people are reacting, how they're reacting to it. And when the one thing I loved about the video is crowd shots. There are people laughing, but just kind of like, also... like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, there's so crowd very, shots are fantastic. very confused people in the audience. <laughs> but they're enjoying it. Yeah, and yeah. I think they're enjoying the fact that, like, like I, I got to give it up to this kid sticking with this shit. This is crazy. Davis. Yeah, <laughs> and and I and I, but I but I really like that. That's a strong confidence to have. This confidence that um, it was all you're gonna stick with it, something. It was none. No, it was zero confidence in me. It was uh, in me as an as a performer. It was a hundred percent. It was more me. I was like, that's a funny bit that I wrote. Like I, I don't always feel that way, and I thought that was a good one. Yeah, but you still, like I said, you still have to go out there and do it for, you know, five straight minutes. Yeah. Regardless of what's going on. And when I was watching, I was also thinking about where you worked that out and how <laughs> those went. You know, it went really well. It That's went really well. I mean, it really, it gave me my career, that bit. I mean, I, yeah, right. I did that bit at um, at Luna Lounge once. And then uh, Louis, Louis saw it and put me on his show that he was Louis doing on a, Louis CK on a monthly basis at UCB. Uh-huh. And it to was do great. the same bit to do. I just did that bit. Yeah. Right. The rest of the show would always be something different. But, yeah. But it was nice. He could call me and say, just do that bit. Come do it, that it bit. was like something that you could count on. And, yeah. and, uh, I did it probably four, five or six times for his show, for his show. Oh, and fantastic. I was on shows with like Chris Rock and Robert Smigel. And wow. it was crazy. Yeah. I was still working a day job. Yeah. Yeah, and but then, then you got on com- then then you got on Comedy Central and they wanted you to do that. Did they say we want you to do that bit? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then you do that Some... bit. It went really well. It was a really strong, fun, unique set, and the kind of thing that somebody can see and say like, "All right, I'm amused by something that I wouldn't have thought of, and I wouldn't have thought I would be amused by necessarily." And that means this guy's got something that he can add to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and that's often what shows and personalities john and steven are looking for it's like okay not only do you have to be able to do what i do but you have to bring your own thing to it and i have to like what you're doing and that's an indication that that's how that's right. going to work so out that was taped in august of 1999 uh-huh. um it aired on january 3rd and then i started the daily show on the 21st of january um, of but 2000. did you get the job before it aired, though? I mean, I, you, you I did. I got the job before it aired. Okay, so they at the they, end of the, the. It's not like they saw that and said, no, 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 no. It was, but I had already built up a kind of a body of work. I guess, okay, so then. so we're gonna um, take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, uh, a little bit about you know getting on the Daily Show, transitioning over to Colbert, and uh, uh, what's in store for the future for um, Colbert and uh, and more importantly, Eric Drysdale. I'm J.R. Hamlin. This is Writer's Block Podcast. We'll be right back. Did I forget to mention Eric wrote for The Daily Show? Well, he did. And in our thrilling act three, he'll tell us how it differed from working at the Colbert Report and how he made that transition. Oh, and Google Crazy Davis. He's hilarious. And then Google Crazy Eddie. He's crazy. Or at least his prices were. I'm J.R. Havlin, and you're listening to Writer's Block, but you knew that. Hi, Eric. Hi, JR. How are you? I'm, I'm really good. Would you like to do Act 3? Sure. All right, let's do that. We were just talking about The Daily Show. Yes. You you got your job at The Daily Show uh, in January of 2000. Yeah, I started uh, Which there. we mentioned earlier, and then that was uh, a year after John was there, and a year before the show really kind of took off because of the 
2000 elections. Right. That's actually interesting. The first show – I actually looked at this before I came just because I wanted to remind myself. The first show I did was the stories were about the Oscars, the Canadians putting warnings on their cigarettes, and then the second show there was something about the Iowa caucus. Oh. Well, so that's yeah. like the really the beginning of that wow. yeah. whole clusterfuck. Right, right, right. And, and the beginning of John sort of realizing like I can oh. – there's something yeah. more to be made of this. Right. That was really exciting. But you still – so you came in during a bit of a transitional time for The Daily Show, but you still came into a show that was established, and you were there for how long? Uh, almost six years. Almost six years. And then you were chosen by Stephen, let's say, which is probably uh, true. I mean I, I asked. Okay. You were interested in – Going over to develop yeah, and this it worked show. Out. Yeah, and it worked out very well. Yes. So, but that's, uh, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that idea. Like you came into the Daily Show, a thing that was established, you fit in, you worked there for a while, everything was going great. Mm -hmm. And then you decided you want to go to something where now you're going to develop something from scratch. Just a little bit about how those two experiences uh, differed. Well, the nice thing about the grind is that it's a grind. You know, I, if when you come into the middle of something, uh, it's pretty clear, you know, what you have to do. I really like getting assignments. I think that's why I'm well suited to the kind of work that we did at the Daily Show and at the Colbert Report. Mm -hmm. um, I like somebody saying, "Oh no, go write this and this and this, and then come come back." So you came into the Daily Show, and there was, you know, a grind that you fit into, and it was already established and right. was already going. Now, when you say like, "Okay, I want to go actually develop something." You're in a different boat now. Now you now it's not like go do this and this and this. It's right. like it's like come up what with do you stuff got? that we can use. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's not that terribly different. I mean, a lot of the difference came from flowing from Steven's character. I mean, John's all we've you've talked about. It was this already on the pretty established. Yeah, yeah. Because of those of the, the Yeah. So there were things there were kind of things to hang on to. Um and it's similar in that you have to come in with ideas, you have to pitch things. But the the difference is you're kind of working bigger picture. You're you're thinking like what is going to work not just now but the next time and the next time. What are what are what are these holes that we're going to be able to refill and refill and refill? That is a big difference in development and that. So yeah, yeah you're, that, just, you're, you're not you're, just, you're not what, just coming up with the jokes. You're coming up with a way to get jokes later. Well, the whole framework. You yeah, to, you you build the frame and then you put in all the all the other stuff. Yeah, and figuring out which which of those structures really lend themselves to bringing Steven's character out or bringing the comedy out and which ones don't work as well. And that took, you know, there are segments that we stopped doing. And I remember thinking like, uh, um, I knew Steven could do this character and it would be fun and all that. I remember thinking the biggest problem, I don't understand how in the hell he's going to do an interview right. in that character. And, yeah. and uh, um, were you ever thinking early on, like, oh boy, this oh, seems yeah. like a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yes. I remember thinking like, wow, that's going to be hard. Steven might be able to do it. I'm not sure who else could. could right. But even yeah, for him, course. that seems like a, a hard thing to pull off. And, you know, I mean, it's a testament to Steven and Richard and Allison and yourself and everybody that was involved in the beginning to be able to establish that framework that he could then shine. And it in. happened really fast. It happened yeah. in five weeks. Five weeks. And there's, you know, there's a... Before air? Yeah, I think five weeks before air. They must have been working on some stuff before you got involved, though. I, mean, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, they must thing. have, yeah. But once the show was on, it was like, oh, yeah, that's going to work. Right, 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 right. 
was there a particular bit that you um, thought of at the beginning? At the beginning, I can think of things that didn't make it up the air, <laughs> but just kind of like to show how kind of wide we aimed. I remember I wrote a piece about Stephen picking up the sequel to Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand's Guilty album, which had just come out. And it was like a really long thing about him comparing the new Barry Gibb, Barbara Streisand album to the old one. And why would he be interested in that? I don't know. Because I was interested in writing about it, I guess. Yeah, right, right. But it, um, but it got on. He went in. It didn't get on. Oh, no. Okay. But <laughs> it, it didn't get on. But it was like, that's what we were encouraged. We were encouraged to kind of go wider. You yeah. Know? Oh, okay. Uh, or I just did anyway. In in what do you think? Was there a specific effort to sort of like... Um, just what broad, can we do? Br- there was something about a pair of pants that hurt him or something. What was it? <laughs> it was him complaining about his pants or something. Uh-huh. That seems like something you'd remember what it was. You're going you're gonna to remember and then... I remember then... graphic of pants. <laughs> so specific. I know. So, but you were, you also, uh, and there was, there, there continued to be kind of like crazier sort of like outlandish things. You know, maybe a lot of it uh, influenced by now Stephen having the control over this. Uh, you know, if you look at his background with Exit 57 and... and uh, um, oh, with Strangers, with yeah, Strangers with Candy. with Candy. A lot of that stuff is completely insane. I watched a Strangers with Candy sketch recently. No, maybe it was an Exit 57 sketch, mm-hmm. but Amy Sedaris was in it as mm-hmm. well because they were all in that too, right? Yep. And the whole thing, it's called Salmon. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. They're like, or he, not recently, he yeah. and Amy Sedaris have a salmon fishery uh-huh. in, in Canada or something. I don't know. And Paul Danello plays like their neighbor who also has a salmon thing, but he has switched over to sturgeon, which is pissing everybody <laughs> off. And, and there's a guy, he's done it because there's an evil guy who's trying to switch everybody to sturgeon and get off of salmon. But Stephen and Amy will have nothing to do with it. And then Paul is trying to get them to go ahead and do it because that's the future. And then they find out that Paul's in cahoots with the guy and there's a big fight. And of course there's, 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 there's but the entire purpose of the sketch seemed to be, let's write a sketch and see how often in a five-minute period, we can use the word salmon. That <laughs> <laughs> was like, that's where the entire thing started. Like, that was the germ of yep. the idea. And so it was crazy stuff like that that he was able to kind of bring out. You had your character, the stage manager. Yes, yeah. Um, and I think that... Bobby, it, was that it? Yes, and uh, I think that came from just like, what are we going to do for 22 Which minutes? Which is like, very sketchy. Like, in other words, that's a thing that wouldn't happen on The Daily Show. For right, the most part. We, right. we did some butler stuff. Elliot was a butler a lot or... We yeah, did some stuff like a little that, bit. but not nothing never ongoing necessarily. Right. Um, yeah, I think it was just um, what are we going to do to fill twenty two minutes? Are people going to be are going to be people going to want to watch one guy talk for twenty two minutes? And it turns out, if it's Stephen Colbert, of course they are. Was there sort of a concerted effort during the development time to separate from at least the format of the Daily Show? The overarching. Th- thing that made every, is that everything came from Steven's character and as long as we stuck within that um there wasn't a lot of chance that we'd overlap with the daily show and then there were a couple of rules like you know we didn't have correspondence right you know we've had a couple of other characters and we still have a couple characters that come on mm-hmm. but yeah that was one of the differences right there were kind of a, a kind of checklist of things that we would have to keep in mind it's it's easy to write a, a joke because it's well, it's hard to write a joke. <laughs> so so the job is to write a joke and write a joke that 
Stephen's character can say. So you have to write a funny joke, already hard enough, and then you have to write a funny joke that would be believable for that character to say. So sometimes so you write it, a joke that's perfectly good, but Stephen can't say it. Well, he can't say it, or you, or you just realize that the meaning of it is completely different than it than it is on paper or in your head when it comes from that character. Exactly. Which is which is really an interesting kind of dilemma, isn't it? That, yeah. Yes. So when you're when you're when when you're writing for him, then when you're writing for him now, you know, a lot of times you're writing for somebody and you you read in what you believe to be their voice. So you find yourself. I remember writing with DJ David Jabberbaum when Oliver first came on the show, mm-hmm. and we'd be writing a piece for Oliver, and, and Oliver might be even in the room, and DJ would be doing this just completely, as we're writing it, he'd be doing this completely outlandish English accent. And, and Oliver would be right there, and I would look at him like, is this not... <laughs> is he I making would, fun of you? I would, I would say, like, he would, he, it wouldn't even seem to affect him. And I thought, like, isn't this, like, insulting to you? I don't understand. And I think what it was was that Oliver didn't even, tonally, didn't even recognize what, that he was doing it. So, so, he's, so DJ's over there jumping around like a fucking chimney sweep. And I'm looking Gumpner. at Oliver like, come on. <laughs> Literally, like, but what he was doing in his own mind was... At least seeing like what it would sound like yeah. a little bit, you know, and there's a difference there. Yeah, it's always keeping that in mind. And it's not always easy because it's it's about writing jokes, too. And for me, anyway, it's like I write jokes and then I figure out which ones fit. Right. Rather than I mean, I have a sense of the character. And I'm but yeah, drawn but you're already, towards... I mean, as you as you're writing them, you're, you're, you're kind of you're, you're probably editing a lot more than you're giving yourself credit for. Yeah. In within the process. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're, or, uh, you know, or massaging something so that it actually would work. Right. Kind of flipping, flipping the attitude of something. Maybe it's just like a, a little bit of a point of view. Thing. Yeah. Stephen yeah. always has an opinion on it. It's yeah. never it's you know, he rarely presents a fact without telling you what he thinks about it. And that's what's funny about it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you are, uh, uh, Stephen is going to be the host of the uh, uh, of the Late Show. Yes. That seems to be an actual thing now. It seems like it's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> I mean, you never know these days. But he's, you're clearly focusing on the Colbert Report. Yeah, I mean, as it's, is Stephen. It's hard not to. I mean, is this an, an exciting period? Is it, are you a little it bit? It is. Uh, it is. But, you know, the nice thing about it is what's the best thing about the job, I, th- I think, for me is, that it is the grind. Like I have to go in and put my head down and do that stuff every day. And it's hard to make a show and there's like not a lot of time to worry about the next show. Yeah. Right. Right. It's going to be really fun to watch. And so then that will wrap up. Uh, The new show will be starting next year. Hopefully you'll be over there too. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, that would be interesting to start the, to develop yet another yes, show with Stephen really... with, with now the real Stephen rather than a different character. I know like, it's, a, it's an amazing that opportunity. opportunity yeah. yeah, so that's very exciting. I'm excited for you. I hope that that works out and that you're able to go over there. And uh, um, that's going to be a really fun thing to see unfold. And it'll be great to see Stephen in another seat and to see Stephen be able to show the world who Stephen is, which he's yes. had slight opportunities to do. But even when he goes and speaks like at the correspondence dinner, he still does it as Colbert. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I think it's gonna be fine. Oh yeah, so do I. A lot <laughs> I of... think that it's it's but so you know, funny it's... because when he started the show, everybody said, "How is he gonna be able to do this character?" Yeah. And now they're saying, "What do you mean he's not gonna do the character?" Yeah. 
or 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 they or they just don't even understand that it's a character at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Think about like what a great performer he might be <laughs> if he can have you think that this yeah, is an actual. It's it's like, it's amazing to work with him every day. It's amazing every day. All right, Eric Drasdale, it's great to have you. Thanks for being on the ride. Good to be block. here. All right. Say good night, Eric. Good night. It's amazing every day. Sure is a nice thing to be able to say about your job and your boss. A huge and sincere congratulations to Eric and everybody over at the Colbert Report for an amazing run that fully deserved every bit of attention it got. Now that you've listened to Eric's story, why not go back into the Writer's Block archives and check out episode 36 with his sister Rebecca Drysdale, a writer for Key and Peele, an amazing performer in her own right, and according to Eric, a pretty good sister. That's it for now. Say goodnight, blockheads. Blockheads.